This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W-R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The ways science and religion speak to each other is a constant source of back-and-forth tension among public thinkers. Are they compatible or incompatible? How is religiosity being tracked within psychology and neuroscience research? What sorts of experiments are being done in the sciences to track religiosity? The list goes on. A scholar of religious studies who tracks these questions is Dr. Andrew Ali Agapur. Dr. Agapur is a scholar and storyteller of religion whose interests converge where science, religion, and brain research meet. He is also a consulting scholar at the National Museum of American History, a producer for the Ministry of Ideas podcast out of Harvard Divinity, and the writer and performer of the one-man show, Zara. In this conversation, we trace his interest in science, religion, brains, discuss the Zara show, and talk about how brain research attempts to track religiosity and some information on how those types of experiments are carried out. You can find Dr. Agapur on Twitter, at Andrew Agapur. You can find information on his one-man show at Zara.live. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Classical underscore Ideas. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Dr. Andrew Agapur, welcome to Classical Ideas. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm delighted to have you. I'm wondering if you can just spend a moment and introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, however you see fit, just to kick us off here. Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. My name is Andrew Ali Agapur. I'm, I have a PhD in religious studies where I studied religion and science and religion and the brain. And these days, I kind of just call myself a storyteller. I work a few different jobs that all involve storytelling. I have a one-person show called Zara that's about growing up Muslim in the American South. And I also work at the National Museum of American History consulting there on an upcoming exhibit on religion and science. So I'm somebody who's just really interested in religion and science. And I've been really lucky to be able to do lots of projects where I try to tell stories uh, about where those two things intersect. Nice. Okay, cool. Uh, so I want to frame a little bit of your interests uh, with some of your some of your path that you have traveled. You know, I want to know about how you came to care about these areas of expertise that you have and sort of this, the path that you traveled to to getting to where you are now. So I'm wondering if I can hear a little bit about some of your academic notable turning points along the journey as you, you know, traveled through your learning to come to care about these areas of interest that you have, like science and neuroscience and technology and religion. What was that path like? Yeah, thanks for asking. It's so funny when you look back at, you know, one's intellectual path to see how much of it is rooted 
in your childhood. You know, when I was in college, I had these interests that it took me a decade to understand why I was so interested in them. You know, when I was in college, I was interested in political philosophy. I was really into John Rawls, this theory of justice that tried to figure out how we would have an equitable, diverse society that had fairness for everyone. And I was obsessed with religious studies, learning about different religions, how they interact. And I was really interested in science. Looking back at where those interests came from, I think so much of it had to do with my upbringing being a child of immigrants. I was raised in Charleston, South Carolina. I had a British uh, Christian mother and a Muslim Iranian father. And I grew up kind of in the American melting pot, going to mosque and church and public school. I think that a lot of my interests in retrospect, when I started my intellectual journey, had to do with making sense of how worlds intersect, being raised in an interfaith household, having friends from lots of different uh, countries and religious backgrounds. I think I've always been really interested in how these kind of big systems, whether it's religions or particular sciences, how they intersect and how we can kind of exist at those intersection points uh, to help us better understand ourselves at the same time. Excellent. Well, okay. So as you're traveling through, where's your interest in science and technology? Does that go far back in your life? I think that when I first got into it, it was that, you know, I I was raised kind of believing in both Christianity and Islam, raised practicing it too. And it was like a jumble in my head. And science seemed like this third thing. Like, all right, let's see what science has to say. Maybe that can give me some answers. And from there, I kind of realized that there's lots of different questions that can be answered by both science and religion. But that was what got me into it. And then I just fell in love with studying the brain. The brain is so interesting. Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah, it's just endless the amount of cool stuff you can learn uh, about this what mass of like four pounds of flesh that happens to create consciousness and do all the really fun things that we experience every day. Interesting. What was your graduate studies like after you got out of like your undergraduate years? What was that decision-making process like to pursue these things further? Yeah, I am, um, you know, in college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I wasn't set on being a professor. My parents have an amazing restaurant in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. And I was debating whether to, you know, keep working there and one day inherit the business. Uh, My parents were pushing me towards trying to, you know, get to the next station of life, be a professor or a lawyer or a doctor. I think they're still disappointed that the doctor I became is not uh, the one that can actually help people. Um, But the decision kind of came on accident, I knew that I was interested in religion and science. I applied to some grad programs. I got into the MPhil program at Cambridge University in the history and philosophy of science. And my mom's British. I could live in England and get a master's there. Nice. Came, yeah, and it's just like I had to do it. You know, it was really fun. British culture is crazy, especially Cambridge, which is like Harry Potter minus the magic. It was such a trip. And from there, 
once I started studying the history and philosophy of science, I knew that I wanted to study religion next. And that's what took me to UNC Chapel Hill to work in the department there and get my PhD. Excellent. Okay. So I know that you have this side uh, that like this really passionate uh, approach to being a stand-up comedian as well. And a storyteller, as you mentioned, right when we got on the phone here together. And I want to talk a little bit about this because I watched a scene from your one-man show, Zara, where you talk about being raised Muslim in the American South in an interfaith home. But then you also talk about moving away from religion. So um, can you talk a little bit about that family structure growing up? Because it sounds like your your mom also immigrated from somewhere else, which is another interesting variable to the story. So I'm curious about what that dynamic was like for you. Yeah, thanks for asking. Yeah, I was, it's so funny. Like, you know, I've never had a problem with like pantheism, the idea of multiple gods, because I was straight up raised in a pantheistic household, even though it was a monotheistic one. Because we had, we, we went to mosque every single week. I was taught in, you know, I was taught to pray. I was taught to believe the tenets of Islam, including that there's Allah, there's no God, but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. But then like on the side was also like, oh, but that's the same God as Christianity. And that God, there's actually three of them. And there's also uh, a rabbit that poops chocolate. And that's an Easter thing. And there's also uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like there was a huge uh, number of big forces in my life that all seemed like gods. And I think I lived a childhood just kind of um, seeing how they all mixed together. I'm really proud to be a child of immigrants. My mom came to the United States from England when she was eight years old. She was uh, on a actual boat that crossed the Atlantic and she can remember seeing the Statue of Liberty Mm. uh, from like the top of the boat, which is crazy to me that that was still happening then, like in the 60s. I don't know why, but that just blows my mind to imagine her on a boat coming into Ellis Island. Yeah. Uh, My dad immigrated to the United States to escape the revolution in Iran, what's now called the Islamic Revolution. Yeah. He was in the city of Abadan, where a movie theater uh, was famously and, and horribly burned to the ground with innocent people inside. With that happening, he tried to flee. He got hit by a car amongst the chaos of, and broke his back. He bought a cane and a plane ticket to the United States and withdrew all of his life savings and came to the United States with almost no English. Uh, he only knew words that he had learned from happy days. So I always imagine him like talking his way across the border. Like, you know, do you have your documents? Hey, you know, thumbs up like Fonzie. Nice. But he, he figured it out. He made it in uh, and they met and fell in love in Charleston, South Carolina uh, and raised. They opened a restaurant in an old cathedral, built an apartment at the top. So I was raised kind of by immigrants with two religions in a former cathedral above a restaurant uh, was kind of where I, the, the crazy place that I come from and where a lot of my uh, interests in religion and science were first born. The, um, the, intri- the, the statement about the Iranian revolution as well is very fascinating because I have a friend who is Baha'i, 
who also fled Iran in that exact same event. And the stories that he has told about being a religious minority fleeing Iran for the United States has been also a tremendous uh, gift to my understanding of, you know, geopolitics in the world as well. You know what I mean? That's yeah, so true. And what's what I think it took me a long time to really understand and be comfortable with is that there that these things are so full of contradictions and paradoxes that my father fled an Islamic revolution because he didn't want to live in a theocratic society. And yet when he came to the United States, Islam was a deeply important part of his life. He raised us Muslim, taught us how to pray. Islam became a really serious marker of identity for him and for his family. And then now when I hang out with him, he doesn't really practice Islam anymore. He's much more into UFOs as his like deity of choice these days uh, and maybe the stock market. Uh, but like his life had a long trajectory in terms of the roles of different religions in his life. Um, and it's, it's often the case that when we first meet someone, you know, a label like Muslim, it's just at the surface. And then you start digging and there's so much uh, more that you wouldn't expect uh, to be you know, right there to find. Nice. I'm curious about your interest in stand-up comedy as well. How did that passion come to uh, grow within you? That all started when I was in grad school. I had learned that there was a local comedy theater that was doing shows, and I'd never seen comedy live maybe once uh, long before. Walked into this room, and there were people doing improv. Have you ever seen an improv show before, Greg? Oh, yeah, for sure. I uh, There was an improv group at the University of Missouri that I would go see every Wednesday when I was an undergrad. So I've seen a lot. And I also was fortunate enough to go to Second City in Chicago oh, cool. on a trip there a couple of years back. So I have a, a deep respect for the art form. I mean, yeah. it's really incredible. And it's just magic, right? Like the way that people can go up on stage with absolutely no script and create not just coherent worlds, but very, very funny scenes that feel like they could have been scripted. It just seemed like magic to me. And I completely went down the rabbit hole. I just wanted to learn how this works. It was also amazing as someone who's pretty shy and, you know, I'm a nerd, I'm an academic, and I'm always afraid of getting things wrong. It was so liberating to practice an art form where we're completely making everything up on the spot. And I got into stand-up and storytelling as an extension of my love of improv that, hey, I can use these tools from improv where we try to find the funny, see what an audience responds to. And then in the act of storytelling and stand-up, we can refine elements of ourselves, stories from our background in ways that get a reaction out of the audience. Yeah. And, and that's just really fun to me to learn in the process, like, oh, there's these things about my background that are interesting to folks and strange and funny. And I kind of get to discover that every time I go up on stage, every time I'm at an open mic or, or practicing with, you know, one of the directors or, or producers of, of the show, Ashley Melzer, the director of Zara has been such a, uh, an amazing person to kind of vet ideas with, think about what the kind of central message of the show would be. 
so stand-up and storytelling have been such a delightful discovery for me uh, of a way to have dialogue with an audience. I'm curious about finding humor in your own unique upbringing as well as in religion. Can you tell me about finding humor within these areas that you tend to dissect? Yeah, it's, I mean, some people would say it's tricky, right? Because we do want to be respectful. I would never tell jokes on stage uh, that came from a a place of being an outsider and making critical observations or something. All of my humor is rooted in myself and it's 99.9% self-deprecating. I think that with religion, we all, no matter what your background, whether you're from a particular religious tradition, or even if you're raised atheist, all of us know what it's like to be raised with a worldview that then sometimes gets challenged, that sometimes uh, creates really powerful experiences. And so a lot of my humor is an attempt to make sense of my own past, my own experiences of religion and science and how they've impacted me. And if I can make that funny because it makes you think of something that you identify with similarly, even if we're from different backgrounds and worldviews, then that's a good joke to me. You know, a joke where we're identifying with each other in the act of laughing. Have others who have grown up within interfaith lives like you, come up to you after seeing some of your work and been like, Hey, me too. Yes. It's so fun that like the, the first time that we premiered the one person show Zara at, at a college at UNC Chapel Hill, there was a lot, it was, I was very just delighted and, and humbled and amazed at the line of undergrads who were there specifically there's this long line and I was like oh I wonder why they're all here maybe it was an assignment where they have to get me to like punch a card or something to get credit for this but every single one of these students were there to tell me about how they had an interfaith upbringing and sometimes it was that you know that they too had a a Muslim and a Christian as parents other times it was, you know, maybe two variations of Protestantism or an atheist and a Jew uh, who were their parents. And so every single kind of shade of difference and combination became something to start a conversation. And it was so cool that so many of these students were like, yes, I know what this is like to have a mixed faith background. And finally, I've got someone to talk to about it. It was really special. I love it. Well, and something else I noticed while I was watching your special is that your work, your spoken work, weaves the topics of science and religion together quite seamlessly throughout. And I'm wondering if this is a conscious decision you're making in the writing process, in the development process. What's the motivation there for going back and forth to mentioning science and then religion and then back to science and then back to religion throughout? Because it seems like you go back and forth so seamlessly throughout. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think that what you might be referring to is um, uh, a part of the show called Birth Story. It's Mm -hmm. a story of uh, the birth of my daughter Zara, which was a hospital birth, it was you know a place where there was a lot of science and scientific vocabulary. 
but how that experience of a hospital birth evoked for me very similar experiences to when I was initiated into Reiki and kind of learned some sacred energy practices. Uh, so that story, uh, I loved your question about, you know, how conscious is it to do the work that I do in that story of kind of showing that experientially science and religion could overlap so much. And that was a great example of how storytelling is so often about the particular audience in the particular moment. Mm. That story I was asked by Jeff Polish, who runs an amazing storytelling program called the Monty, M-O-N-T-I. Jeff said, I've got a show booked for like next week and it's about medicine and religion. Do you have a story? And my daughter was like, eight weeks old at the time. Mm. And I had just had this experience alongside my uh, wife, who's was so strong and so just blew my mind throughout the process of birth uh, with her strength and resolve. And I compare her in the story to some of the kind of sacred figures that I had learned about in studying the sacred and the profane. Uh, But having just gone through that, and given the opportunity to write a story for that audience that week, I just dropped everything I was doing, got a babysitter to help during the day so that I could write, and that story came out. I think that's kind of one of the magic things about storytelling. I would not remember our birth story very well anymore if I hadn't been asked to sit down and tell a story about it. And so, so I'm thankful to have those memories. And that was why in the process of writing that one, I was thinking there's so much religion and science here. This is what I want to highlight and try to work through as a means of self-understanding, as a way of unpacking what had happened where two of us walked into a hospital and three of us came out. Yeah, I, I, I love the idea of documenting as well. And I think that that's what one of my main inspirations is for doing this show is that if you look back through the archive of the episodes that I've ha- done on this podcast, like those conversations that I did like episode 25 and 28, and I'm like 200 plus now, I like I look back on those and I can flash back to those moments of having the conversation, picture where I was sitting when I recorded it. And all of those moments will come back to me in crystal clear, vivid detail because those are all standalone moments in time, which are now documented. So being able to reflect back on those moments is really powerful for me because those are the kinds of moments that tend to uh, just drift away with time. And now I can have those moments like captured. So I know exactly what you mean, you know? I love that. And what I love about that is that it goes to show just how much the ideas that we're working with, the concepts and frameworks that we use to understand the world are just central to our identity, right? Whichever ones you have on hand in your toolbox that you're using at a certain moment in time, that's so deeply personal. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like it can just take us back to who we were at that time stamp in that moment in time. You know, your birth, the birth story that you tell in Zara about is sort of like alludes, like almost like finding the divine in unexpected ways after the birth of Zara Agapur. And it made me tear up. I was watching it only 20 minutes ago. I was like, I'm going to save this moment until just before we get on this call. 
And then all of a sudden, I'm having flashbacks of the arrival of Gloria Soden into the world, who was about to celebrate her eighth birthday. Wow. And you talk about finding wonder in small things. The example you give in the special is frogs, right? And how you can't wait to show Zara frogs. And the story is from 2017. And as you know, the last year and a half, two years now, has been a totally new world. And the wonder that you describe about finding that after the birth of Zara, you you seem to have this, this sense of newfound wonder again with the world and you find yourself appreciating new things, but the, the seismic upheaval of the world in the last two years is so profound. And I'm wondering if you still find yourself cherishing the world in these new wonderful ways after the last two years that we have been experiencing together here on this in this in this world, that's a great question. I mean, and, and there's two opposite answers. Like on the one hand, there's definitely been times this last year, you know, that it's been impossible to appreciate wonder, where I've just been exhausted, mm-hmm. burnt out, uh, and you know, COVID not only disrupted our lives and and filled us full of anxiety and fear and mourning, but also so many of our coping mechanisms, so many of our hobbies got disrupted. I kind of learned about myself that not practicing comedy week to week was really disruptive. And so there mm-hmm. were some hard moments. Uh, and yet, on the other hand, I feel like there has been even more of those almost out of body, awe filled experiences at little things. Uh, over the last year and a half than maybe, you know, the five years before it, because Mm. there's so many things that we take for granted every day. I remember when after a whole year, my parents came after they got their shots to visit my family and visit and see their granddaughter in person for the first time since, you know, the beginning of the pandemic. And it was, you know, I'll never forget her running to the driveway to see them. Yeah. And in that moment, I just remember thinking that this thing, the relationship between a grandparent and a young child is so sacred and pure and valuable and transformative. And look at how I was so used to it that, you know, I, you know, a year before that, if they come over, it would have been like, okay, you know, let's get, you know, the kebab meat ready for dinner. And, you know, somebody watch Zara while I get the grill. All yeah. of a sudden I would be lost to the mundane things that I needed to focus on. I think that COVID by creating a radical separation from the world has made it, uh, has made re-entry into the old world something that almost requires a series of experiences of awe. I I can't wait to go to a coffee shop again. I still haven't done that. It's going to blow my mind. Like I know I'm going to go to a coffee shop, and not get anything done because I'm just going to be sitting there amazed that coffee shops exist. Yeah. And it, it's been one of the really, I mean, Delta has complicated this, but, or, or put it on pause, but reentry into the world has been something that has been full of wonder for me. Awesome. That's fabulous. Um, Well, you know, before we get into a little bit more of your academic 
work. Uh, I'm wondering how comedy helps you convey complex ideas to general audiences because religion, talking about religion as a scholar is so complex. And I'm wondering how comedy helps you as a communicator with regards to your academic work. That's a really good question. I think that something I do workshops sometimes for graduate students on storytelling and comedy and using it to present complex ideas. And one of the running themes in those workshops lately has been that if we can show an audience why we are interested in something and try to translate some of that complexity through ourselves, that's often a easier way for an audience to absorb something uh, than if it's try facts. Like if I tell you, as I did in the birth story that you so generously watched, if I tell you as an audience member that I was raised Muslim, but kind of lost my faith and was an atheist, then I learned about the sacred and the profane in a religious studies class. And then I had a hospital birth that completely challenged my kind of mundane atheism mm -hmm. that's going to bring a lot of complex ideas to the table that i sometimes talk about this as reverse engineering an epiphany i want to engineer an epiphany for you the audience member where the story ends and it clicks for you what i'm putting together with all of these different pieces and if i can reverse engineer that epiphany I've done the work of bringing a lot of complex things together in just one moment. And it's going to be hard to, well, you know, there's limits to the types of complex things we can explain that way, but I think storytelling is just such a great way to do it. I know you've been focused on public scholarship for a while. Uh, I know we're, we're here to talk about sacred rights as well in a little bit, which is, you know, obviously totally committed to the practice of, you know, public scholarship with regards to religious studies. But and I know that you've been doing this for a while and you had a, uh, like a, a blog, an ongoing blog series about science, religion, technology, and ethics that you did with religion dispatches called the Qubit. And I'm wondering if you can reflect upon that experience a couple years ago of, you know, sort of curating this, this blog space. Oh, I'd be thrilled to. The Qubit at Religion Dispatches was one of the most fun projects I've ever done. It was my co-editor, co-producer, co-founder, you know, best friend, Michael Schulson was the person I did it with. We had amazing leadership from Evan Derkoch and Lisa Webster, who were the editors-in-chief uh, of Religion Dispatches at that time. And what we pulled together for the Qubit was that we wanted to cast as wide a net as possible to capture any of those strange intersections between religion and science, whether that was kind of brain training apps or and Fitbits uh, or creationism debates or reproductive science and the history of uh, like the history of images of the womb was a really great uh, piece that we edited. We had a hundred pieces that we edited from uh, academic authors and journalists uh, or wrote ourselves. And what was so fun about it was that when you, that was the first time I really discovered that if you give yourself the goal of studying those things 
where the Venn diagram of religion and science overlap, right? When that's the little sliver of the world that you want to study, that you can study anything and that all of it's going to be interesting. I mean, like when it comes to religion and science, you get to have two things that are supposed to not go together, but which constantly intermix. And the places where they intermix are, to me, just inherently fascinating. Mm. Well, let's talk about that. The way that religion happens in the brain is something that I'm really curious to discuss with you and learn a little bit more about. Uh, before we discuss like a specific piece of work that you've written, I'm wondering if you can you know, talk a little generally about what you know about how religion happens in the human brain, what are some highlights of how religion happens inside of our inside of our brains? Yeah, happy to. Yeah, this is such a fascinating time to be talking about religion in the brain. It's been going on for a long time, kind of conjecture about where in the brain religion might you know be going on. Like Hume had some theories, and phrenology in the 19th century thought that there was a specific God spot where spirituality was located. There's been a kind of history in the early modern era of enlightenment projects trying to discover the religion spot in the brain. And that was a kind of project that involved a lot of hubris, but really interesting probe into history of where people think religion is. Now, since the 90s, there's been this thing called the cognitive revolution, and it's been these kind of big advances in cognitive science, evolutionary psychology, neuroimaging, lots of different ways to study the brain and start to map which parts are firing when we're doing certain activities, which parts are associated with certain states of mind. Now, there's good news and bad news. The good news is there's been these kind of breakthroughs and new techniques for studying the brain, and they're really amazing. And there's so much that we get to study. The bad news is we don't know anything. <laughs> like we're mm. so early into studying religion in the brain yeah. that when you start to go looking for it, sometimes the discoveries about where religion is in the brain kind of say more about the scientists and where they're looking than about any particular God spot. There are like tons of great studies. Yeah. Um, and yeah, sometimes it's a matter of kind of figuring out like, I don't know what, like you can find really interesting studies that show that like, if you put Mormons in an fMRI machine and ask them to think about the afterlife, we'll get a little bit more like firing in the nucleus accumbens and the premedial frontal cortex, which sometimes can be associated with moral reasoning. Mm. But it's also that like that part of the brain is fired by a wide variety of people when you ask them to think about like big picture ideas of what's good. So is that an inherently religious part of the brain or is it that different folks with different backgrounds use the same parts of the brain to process things like the big picture or what is right or wrong? Uh, and if that's the case, it might mean that we have a lot more in common than different. Yeah, I think that understanding what we can know and what we have no idea about yet is a really important distinction here. And, you know, in, in you wrote an article called Does Analytic Thinking Erode Religious Belief? And 
I really enjoyed the way that you discussed the dubious ways that neuroscience and religion are interconnected and that, um, you know, how certain scientists tend to do experiments in a way that says more about them than about the actual religious belief. I'm wondering if you can generally describe like what some of these experiments might look like that might lead to a dubious connection that then a person like you has to go in and challenge. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I have, I'll sometimes say that if you find religion in the brain, you probably accidentally put it there. Like, mm. Oftentimes when scientists go looking, it's really easy to, to impose our assumptions like onto the data and the piece that you're referring to, which I wrote for the Qubit for Religion Dispatches, was about uh, a article called Analytic Thinking Promotes Religious Disbelief. Uh, it, it has since been retracted um, for some of the reasons that uh, we might get into. Uh, but this piece by Will Gervais and Ara Noren Zion, the article argues that if you engage in analytic thinking, that undoes religious belief, that the more analysis you do, the more rational cogitation that you do, the more it erodes your religiosity. So when you see that headline, like, you know, it made the news, it was everywhere. Look at this, scientists have proven that there's this anti-rational element of religion. It grabs attention because it seems to validate some of our assumptions mm -hmm. or, you know, expectations. And yet when you dig into it, it gets real sketchy. So mm -hmm. what I describe in this article is how these experiments that purportedly proved this contrast between analytic thinking uh, and religiosity, <laughs> they did these different experiments. They were all versions of the same thing. One of them, they say, they get a bunch of Canadian undergrad students like because they're all working at universities. <laughs> uh, so the, the survey population was some undergrads. And they said, all right, we're going to show you some pictures. One group, the control group, was a bunch of random pictures of like from art history. Another group, they showed pictures that included like the thinker, you know, that statue um, of Rodin's of the guy kind of sitting there and, and thinking. And then they asked those populations to do a survey about how religious they were. And the folks who were shown images associated with analytic thinking self-reported less religiosity. So one interpretation of that is that you have somehow induced analytic thinking and that has made them less religious. I think a much more accurate or, or uh, more likely to be accurate interpretation of that is it isn't clear to me that that actually has induced analytic thinking. You have fed them images that they associate with analytic thinking and rationality. Mm -hmm. which of course it influences impressionable undergraduates to self-report less religiosity. Yeah. And they did this in other experiments too, that all had the same flavor where you can kind of push somebody to say they're less religious if you show them things that are associated with science. So there we're not really necessarily discovering that analytic thinking erodes religious belief, but we seem to be, isolating here in this laboratory experiment is the fact that people don't think that they go together, yeah. which is a very different thing. Well, and it seems to me that there would be a methodological challenge of having people self-identify their own level of religiosity coming into the experiment, because 
what is the difference between very and somewhat on an entry survey and things like that? You know what I mean? Like it seems really dubious to have somebody self-identify. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, my own experience as someone who has spent the last 10 years telling stories that try to mine into my own religious beliefs and history, that has really shown me that one quick answer, (laughs) how religious are you on a scale of one to seven, is about as meaningless as it gets. It's pretty hard to collapse something like religion onto a, you know, a seven point scale. Yeah. I also get the impression that you personally aren't impressed by the attempt at neatly fitting something into categories such as non-religious and religious. Do I have that right? You seem to be really unimpressed with those categories. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I've been, <laughs> I think as many of your guests, uh, many of the scholars on this program uh, know that you know, religion is almost an inherently ambiguous category. There, there's no predefined thing in the world outside of us that is religion. And so what that helps us do when we see someone drawing the lines, saying, hey, this is religion and this isn't, we, since that's almost inherently going to be artificial, it helps us to see what they're up to, right? So when I see a, a neuroscientist saying, hey, we're going to define as religious things that are not rational, that don't involve analytic thinking. I was like, okay, Thomas Aquinas was really good at analytic thinking. You're cutting out a big portion of religion in that act of kind of gerrymandering Mm. what you think it is or isn't. And so I think that some of my public scholarship, especially uh, when I was writing for the Cubit, was trying to attend to pay attention to the way that those kind of borders got gerrymandered, especially when it came to religion and science. Do you see any improvements in neuroscience methodology in the last 10 years that are giving you hope that these two fields can begin to improve incrementally in the next 10 years? Definitely. I mean, I think that science is, I think that knowledge systems in general are really good at, at, progress, especially modern technoscience is, is, you know, really good at discovering truth. And I have a lot of issues with some of the assumptions that get baked into certain scientific studies uh, of religion in the brain. And yet, you know, those criticisms that I've written on that other scholars have written on are being read by neuroscientists who are then making their their investigations, their experiments that much more sophisticated. Mm. So I don't think there's, uh, I think there's always good reason to be skeptical. So as to, you know, have a critical eye to when assumptions are getting made. But I also, you know, at the end of the day, I'm an optimist who hopes uh, and is excited to see some of the new studies. You know, I've got tons of Google alerts. Yeah. Whenever there's a new study about religion (laughs) in the brain, I dive in deep, get so excited And yeah, I I hope that I can keep doing that for decades to come. So I want to know about your, your plans for the future within this field. Um, And, you know, we're here talking about the 2021 sacred rights research cohort. And I'm wondering about how you can feel your own skill set developing as far as goal setting to communicate these very complex, uh, analyses and contributions to this public discussion in the future. How do you feel yourself growing as a 
uh, it, within your own skill set to convey this stuff publicly. Yeah, thank you. I mean, Sacred Rights has been so amazing. And I'm so thankful to Drs. Liz Bucar and Megan Goodwin and to the Luce Foundation as well, that because the work uh, of of these two professionals uh, who both are do such a great job being public scholars, their work in this program has taught me so much about how we as scholars can get our ideas out there and how to speak to a wide variety of audiences while staying true to ourselves. You know, I'm not someone who maybe is as comfortable sometimes being like in public, even though I do comedy, like I always, for me, comedy is like a separate thing than religious studies. And I'm still trying to integrate those together. Uh, And the training there has made me realize that there's this large growing community of scholars and experts who can create a kind of new generation of thinkers that are much more sophisticated and collaborative when it comes to our public understanding of religion. And so the Sacred Rights Program has been really inspiring. Uh, The cohort that uh, I was a part of are just so many brilliant folks uh, with so many, such a range of expertise. I was just talking about publishing uh, trade books with Brooke Walensky-Lanford and about horror films with Shannon Shorey, two of the um, my cohort members. It's been so cool to see what's out there and to be inspired to try to make great stuff uh, with this new generation of folks. Are you thinking about like uh, diversifying beyond just like the written word as far as getting this stuff out there? How do you see, because like we're doing something right now that is beyond just writing, you know what I mean? Or could you see yourself like continuing to explore other modes of communication? I definitely, I love it. I mean, this is so fun. Uh, It's such a delight and I love the audio medium. I've been really lucky to have joined up onto a couple of other podcast projects. Um, I've been working and producing for the Ministry of Ideas. Cool. Amazing podcast based out of uh, Harvard University that is doing a special series on religion and science. Amazing. That's been so fun and has been so mind expanding when it comes to the types of audio stories that we can tell uh, by by working within this medium with a large group of collaborators. Uh, and I've gotten an upcoming project with Religion for Breakfast awesome. uh, that is going to be podcast-based that is so much fun. Uh, and yeah, I'm just so excited to explore these and other mediums. I think one of the great things about storytelling is that it transcends any particular medium that we use. It can be live on stage. It can be on a podcast. It can be uh, a TikTok. If I ever learn that, I I doubt I will before a new one comes along, but it's really fun to continue to challenge uh, oneself and keep learning those platforms. What are some projects, like, I know you just mentioned several, like, sort of spoken projects that you have in the works. Uh, Do you have any other, like, written things or anything else that's a little more, you know, um, text-based that you're working on as well that you're wanting to preview for any listeners? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, I co-authored a book called Discovery and Revelation, Religion, Science, and the Making of Things with uh, Dr. Peter Manso, who's the curator of religion. I know him. His his work is excellent. So excellent. It was such an amazing experience co-authoring with him, learning uh, about writing through collaborating with him. And what's so great about this book, so there's this upcoming exhibit 
that I can't talk about too much, but it's called Discovery and Revelation, and it's about religion and science uh, in America and, and elsewhere. This exhibit has so many amazing objects, and the book that we co-authored kind of tells the story of uh, about 30 of those objects. I cannot wait for this book to come out. It's going to be in the spring of next year, Discovery and Revelation. Uh, I can't wait for folks to read some of the stories that we were able to tell uh, about the objects of this exhibit. Excellent. Well, Dr. Andrew Agapur, I am so grateful to you for your your time, your your stories, your reflections. I've connected with your work in several different ways over the past week as far as like your connections of neuroscience and religion, as well as your more personalized storytelling um, avenues. So I'm really excited that I've been able to experience like a, a, a variety of the kinds of work that you're interested in, because it just gives me such a, a wider uh, experience as somebody who's interested in talking about your work. So I appreciate the the diversity of your skill sets and what you do. And I'm wondering if you can tell listeners where they can find you if they want to know more about your work and follow along as you move into the future. Well, thank you. And, and I have to thank you that your podcast has brought such intellectual diversity into my life. Into oh, thank you. Years. So I'm so appreciative to you. And it's such an honor to be here. If folks want to follow more of my stuff I infrequently or I don't know I post Twitter is my only social media and it's at Andrew Agapur A-N-D-R-E-W-A-G-H-A-P-O-U-R uh, y'all can find me there uh, and I have a website uh, andrewaliagapur.com where you can find some of my stories past appearances and upcoming projects as well fabulous well thank you so much for being here this has been a real pleasure such a pleasure thank you so much for having me